I'm Imu Shalev, and this is A Book Like No Other. Last time, Rabbi Foreman turned the Garden of Eden into unfamiliar territory by asking some burning questions about the Tree of Knowledge and the Tree of Life. Did Eve misidentify the forbidden tree? Why doesn't God want us to have a knowledge of good and evil? Why is the Tree of Life even there? And what in the world do these two mysterious special trees have to do with each other? Big picture, what's the story hiding in the garden setting? And how does that change the story that we thought we knew? So, you know, just the opening to the whole Torah hanging in the balance. But not to worry, because when I sat down to learn again with Rabbi Foreman, he had a clue to share with me. A single verse that would totally reframe how I thought about the trees ever after. And, quite elegantly, Rabbi Foreman had stumbled across this insight into the beginning of the Torah while perusing a section all the way at the book's very end. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Emu, it's nice to see you again, albeit through Zoom. Lovely to see you too. I want to just bring you into one of the last things that Moshe says to the people at the very end of Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. The context is, is that Moses is nearing the end of his farewell speech to the people, and he starts talking about the Torah. And he says, These mitzvot that I teach you today, here they're not that far away, they're not in heaven. And then he comes and he says something else about these mitzvot. And I'm quoting now from verse 15. See, I have put before you today, I put before you today, what is life and what is good, what is death and what is evil. Gee, you know, when Moshe talks about these, these terms referring to the Torah, he seems to be borrowing from something from the beginning of the Torah. I mean, maybe I was just reading the Garden of Eden too much, but here's Moshe talking about life, and he's talking about good, and he's talking about evil. He's talking about these themes that seem to emerge from these two trees. The two trees in question are, of course, the Eitz HaChayim, the tree of life, and the Eitz Hadas Tovara, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So see what Rabbi Foreman means? Moses is referring to Torah when he says, I've placed before you life and good, death and evil. But three out of four of those words, life, good, evil, are lifted right from the names of the trees. So is that just random? Moshe just happened to pick these ideas out of the air that so evoke these trees from the very first part of the Torah, or is that purposeful? In other words, was Moshe seeing a connection between the two trees that we'd been missing? Something that made him connect both trees to Torah. Rabbi Foreman was willing to bet that he was, that he wasn't just throwing fluff into his final speech to the people. Now, if we could only see what Moshe was seeing, maybe we could start to understand these strange trees ourselves. But why would Moshe pick these words, these themes from the trees, to describe the Torah? That's what was puzzling Rabbi Foreman. And then I kind of began thinking to myself, okay, you know, how would you describe the Torah? Like, let me ask you this question, Emu. If I would say, hmm, a tree of knowledge of good and evil that you're not supposed to eat from, we know that the people transgressed that command pretty early on. Now, you know, one of the interesting questions is, what would have happened if they didn't transgress that command? 
would God have eventually given it to them? We don't know the answer to that. Right. No way to know. Except our intuition tells you that one second, what is this tree of knowledge, good and evil anyway? I mean, if it's as it seems to be, which is just like you get some understanding of good and evil, all of that seems very fundamental to our humanity. It sounds like eventually God maybe would give this to us. Now, there are midrashim to this effect. If we'd only held out till Shabbos in the garden, God would have shared this tree of knowledge, good and evil with us. But Emu, can you name me a moment in history when it seems like God did share his understanding of good and evil with us? When would that be? Uh, Right at Sinai, he tells us. Exactly. Yeah, I'm going to tell you all the good things and the bad things. Do the good things, stay away from the bad things. That's totally it, right? So we would identify a tree of knowledge of good and evil at some level with the Torah. Let's just say that that sort of makes sense on an intuitive level. You would conceptually, say, yeah, it makes sense. Conceptually, like what is the Torah but a knowledge of good and evil? It's like God actually comes out of the clouds and says, here's what to do in these situations. Like that's a really helpful Google Maps roadmap. It lets you proceed in the world without this aching feeling like I'm doing the wrong thing because we all have this idea that we want to be moral people and the Torah helps us understand how. So let's say that the tree of knowledge, good and evil sounds intuitively like it should be associated with the Torah. And then I say to you, Emu, what about a tree of life? Is there anything in your religious experience that connects the notion of a tree of life to the Torah? Repeat the question. Is there anything in your religious experience where... I heard him the first time. I just didn't know how to answer that. I got the algebra, as Rabbi Foreman likes to call it, meaning the way the verses are connected. In Dvarim, Moses seems to connect Torah to the two trees. Play that out with the tree of knowledge, and it makes sense. Both are sources of knowledge of good and evil. But play that out with the tree of life. This one was trickier. I wasn't even sure how to think about the tree of life in the first place. Even less so after our discussion last episode. Throwing the Torah into the mix didn't help. The connection just wasn't landing. But it did strike me that Rabbi Foreman wasn't the first to make this connection. I mean, a tree of life is everywhere. It's the name of like a gazillion synagogues. It's written on the Aron Kodesh in my shul. And actually, right, we, we belt this out every single week at, in shul. We sing, Right, that's what we sing. And why do we sing that? Because there's a verse. It has a pretty tune? Just kidding. She's a tree of life to those who grasp her. That's from Proverbs. It's sung when we return the Torah to the Aron. And if you look at the verse in context, it's pretty clear that Solomon is referring to the Torah. You might even wonder if when Solomon came up with those words, he was looking at Deuteronomy 30. Got it. He looks at Moshe using two descriptors for the same thing, the Torah, and says, well, sure, the Torah is a tree of knowledge of good and evil, but it's not just a tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's also a tree of life, just like Moshe says. I couldn't argue with the evidence, but I still didn't know what to make of it. Scanning Dvarim for clues, something caught my eye. Moshe kind of talks about it, and I never noticed this, but in a very intertangled kind of way. He doesn't say life and death, good and bad. He says, I put before you life and good, death and bad, sort of like intermingling them. Almost it is like, intermingling them. Yeah, that, that's right. Meaning, yeah. I, I, I tell you, I'll tell you how I feel. I read that and I'm confused. I'm like, which one is it? Which tree is, is the Torah? Is the Torah? And notice also you know, that the Torah is one thing. Right, and here are these two trees. It's a little weird. 
We'll get back to this weird intermingling a little later. For now, Rabbi Foreman wasn't going to let me off the hook that easily. I still hadn't answered his question. What would it mean, then, to call the Torah a tree of life? What would that mean to you? Uh, maybe just this notion of, like, God is the source of life, and if you cleave to his commands, well, it's very lifey, that's very good. But now I'm b- back to using words like good. So right. I think maybe a way to make it concrete would be to ask you, like, why do people spend so many hours nowadays in yeshiva learning Torah as kind of their central religious quest after high school? So you could say, because everyone else does it. All right, fine. You need to get a good shidduch. You need to get married. Right? That's how you got married. Or let me ask you a more personal question. What do you get about being involved in a company like Aleph Beta, right? I mean, you could just be a lawyer and make money. This is where you go to make the big bucks. Right. You could just be a lawyer. and As a matter of fact, you came here after you already passed the bar, right? You could have just gone on to Wall Street. What was compelling? I did not take the bar. I came after I got my JD. I hear you. Okay. But a guy with your brain, Zimu, you could have to passed the, the bar. To the sadness of my mother. That's right. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you doing here, right? It's actually kind of funny. I, um, I was studying for the bar, and my brother shoved your book in my hands on one Shabbos, and I read it from cover to cover, and I felt like, oh, this is Torah learning. So it, it gave me a really um, thrilling and exciting feeling, and I felt like I needed to meet you and find out what you were about and see whether I wanted to uh, throw behind my, uh, my legal career and actually come and work for you teaching Torah like that. That's, that's what happened. So what I want to suggest to you is that's the tree of life aspect of the Torah. The chance to connect to the immortal source of all life, it's like a crazy thing that you should be able to do that, right? He's God, the creator of your galaxy with all of its hundred billion stars. And he actually speaks your language and there's words of his that you could understand. You would want to explore that. Why? Not so much because you'd practically want to know what to do, although that would be great too, but just the fact that I could delve into his words and know something. To- you, so where I, I thought you were going was Torah gives a person who studies a great chiyos, that actually like it's thrilling and exciting to learn Torah itself. But you're not really saying that. What you're saying is Torah is basically the words that come from the source of all life, regardless of what is actually being said. Yes. Whether God chooses to communicate a knowledge of good and evil or is choosing to uh, convey to us, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, the history of Mozart, right? It doesn't matter what is being said specifically. The fact that it's coming from the creator and source of all life is, is an end in and of itself. It's the primary way that we can connect him. We can't hug him. We can't touch him. We can't see him. But we can breathe in his words. By the way, breathe in his words is kind of interesting. If you go back to how God is the source of our life, back in Genesis, the language for God becoming the source of our life is he breathes into our nostrils the breath of life. And if you think about words, to make spoken words come alive in the world, you have the articulation of the words with the ideas, but you also just have breath behind that. You need to breathe in order for words to come. It's almost like he gives us life with that initial breath. And a later version of this is the Torah itself. Wow. So God creates us through breath. And then 
he expresses words to us, which as you're saying, come as basically breath that actually forms itself into voice and, and words. And that's Torah. And if you look at it that way, it's really not such a leap to say that Torah is a source of life as much as it's a source of morality. So maybe that's what Moses had in mind in Devarim, why he evoked the tree of life along with the tree of knowledge to describe the Torah. Maybe. It was a really beautiful idea. I'd give Rabbi Foreman that. But I also couldn't help wondering, so what? I mean, let's say this was what Moses had in mind. So he was a poetic person and he used the trees as kind of a metaphor for Torah. How was that supposed to help us make sense of the problems we'd seen in the garden? How deep exactly did this metaphor run? While these questions were percolating in my mind, Rabbi Foreman had a light bulb going off in his. He noticed something, and actually what he noticed, besides being really cool, would end up helping us answer all those questions I just asked as well. So here's what Rabbi Foreman noticed. Remember that he was talking about how Torah is a source of life, and he asked, how exactly is Torah a source of life? Well, it's made up of God's words, and God's words, they're made up of God's breath. And if we take a look at breath, breath is the same thing that animates us. It gives us life. That's how God breathed life into Adam. So we've got breath that animates humanity and breath that forms words and Torah. That's how Torah is a source of life. But how exactly is a tree a source of life? We talked about breath as being a really important way of understanding how Torah is a source of life. But what does breath have to do with trees? In other words, the same thing that makes Torah a source of life. Is it possible that the tree of life has that in common with Torah? So what Rabbi Foreman noticed was a really interesting link, a link between the verse about how God's breath animates humanity a verse back in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 7, and the verse of how the tree of life itself was formed. Those two verses, the verse that describes the creation of man and the creation of the trees, they're actually pretty much right next to each other. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. And not only are they right near each other, they share a nearly identical structure with really interesting implications. So we jump back into the text to take a closer look. So come with me into verse 9 for a moment. And God caused to grow from the ground all trees that were beautiful to look at and good to eat. And there was also a tree of life in the midst of the garden, and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. So there's three clauses to this verse. God caused to grow out of the ground all these beautiful trees, and then there's this tree of life in the midst of the garden. And then there's this tree of knowledge, good and evil. Okay. But now look at the verse that comes two verses before this. And Emu, that verse is going to have three clauses also. And God created man, dust from the ground, clause one. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, clause two. Vahi Adam Lanefeshchaya, clause three, and Adam became this living soul. Now, let's play a little game with me for a moment. Do you see any connection between any of these three clauses in the verse we just read having to do with the creation of man and any of the three clauses in verse nine having to do with 
the trees that are created afterwards. I was following along with you, comparing the clauses as you read, and I was like, that's pretty cool. I can definitely see um, in verse 9, Vayatzmach, um, Hashem Elohim, God is causing to grow from the ground, is perfectly a parallel to Vayitzer, Hashem Elohim, God forms. Mm-hmm. And then Et Adam Afar Min Adama. So God is forming man from the earth. And here in verse 9, God is forming or causing to grow forth, again, min ha'adama, same exact word, from the earth. Yes. This time it's trees. Yes. Good. So man's created min ha'adama. There's all these trees that grow min ha'adama. So much for clause one. Let's look at clause two in each verse. Do you see a connection between clause two in the verse that talks about how man is created and clause two in the verse that talks about the trees? So you have a be'apav nishmat chaim. Um where God blows in man's nostrils this um, breath of life. And in verse 9, that would be parallel to the Eitz HaChaim B'Toch And there was a tree of life in the midst of the garden. Textually, what's the link between Clause 2 and each thing? Chaim. Right? You have Nishmat Chaim versus Eitz HaChaim. Right. So isn't that fascinating? I have three clauses in one verse and three clauses in another verse. And the first clause in each one is minhadama, and the second clause in each one is chaim. Now let's leave aside the third clause in each verse, which is a little yeah. bit more complicated for just a moment. Imu, what would you infer from these connections? What's the point of verse 9 coming, a short two verses after verse 7, and picking up on the same themes of minhadama and chaim? I mean, the first thing that's coming to my mind right now is that man and tree are cousins. That's right. They are related to each other, man and tree. Now, what do I get out of all these trees that are grown from the ground? What does the text tell me in verse 9? They're and they're So what do I get? You get beauty and you get food. Now, interestingly, these are two ways that we relate to trees, and both of them nourish us. The more obvious way we're nourished is when we think tree, we think, oh, great, oranges, apples, I can eat it. But the more subtle way they nourish us is just being around them. Scientific experiments show that we're better off around trees, just the beauty of trees. They call it forest bathing. Right. There's something about being around the beauty of the natural world that is actually invigorating. So now, what do you take from the fact that there are these cousins of ours that grow from the ground that nourish us in these ways? What is the ground for us? In the first verse, the ground is where we come from. The ground Mm. is at some level our creator. And Mm. what obligation does a creator have towards its creature? To nurture it. Nurture it. Can't just give birth to something. You got to take care of it afterwards. The ground takes care of us through the medium of trees. If we could, we just eat ground, but we can't because we die. So where do we get all those minerals from the ground? Via trees, because we can't just connect directly to our source. So instead, we've got this tree that's rooted in our source that provides us all these things that come from the ground. So that's how clause one in each verse connects. I, I happen to have a, a newborn at home, but it, it does very much remind me of, of breastfeeding. Yeah. Of like, this baby came from mother, and mother's not done. She can't just like walk away and be like, fend for yourself. Like, yep. from mother, there is... Uh, source of nourishment. That's right. So Mother Earth nurturing us 
through trees is clause one. But the truth is, man doesn't just come from ground. Because if we keep on reading verse 7, we realize he comes from someplace else also. Our body comes to the ground, but our soul comes from God, from this breath of life. And if God is the creator of our soul, that means that God has an obligation too, mm. to feed our soul. So how's God going to do that? The answer is with a special tree. Now let's go back to verse 9 and look at the second clause. After we hear about the trees that modulate nutrition from the ground, we hear about a tree that modulates nutrition from God. God says, I gave you your breath of life, but you got to keep on breathing. And you're basically saying, okay, in the same way that the breath of life comes to us from God in verse 7, there is a tree of life that nurtures our life in some way in verse 9. But I'm kind of bold. That bowled me over because it's kind of scientifically true. Trees also breathe. Oh, right? trees, don't they? Right? Like trees, they are the source of all of our breath. They're the source of all of our oxygen, right? Right? And that's like really important. Even if I said, like, how long could you go without eating fruit and survive? <laughs> Probably the rest of my life. How long could you go without breathing the oxygen from trees and survive? Uh, also, same answer the rest of my life, but it would be a lot shorter. <laughs> it would be a lot shorter. I mean, right. like, so there's this subtle thing that we get, but boy, is that important. Right? Our life comes from trees. Right. So, do you think that anyone's seen this in like thousands of years? Because they didn't know that oxygen comes to us from trees. But like right. here, it almost feels like very clearly in the text. Like what's parallel in these verses is breath from God, breath of life from God in verse seven, and then verse nine. There's a tree of life, and we know, right, in the 21st century, that trees actually do breathe. They breathe mm-hmm. out. It's yeah. Kind of, it's it's really wild. I hope you're delighting in this as much as we were. It genuinely blew my mind. But here's the thing. If all the Torah wanted to say was that trees give us oxygen so our cells have the energy they need to grow and reproduce and all that good stuff, well, do we really need a separate clause in the verse for that? We already said that trees nourish us physically. Why not just lump breath in with this physical kind of support? Rabbi Foreman actually had a more subtle point to make. Regular old oxygen, that you could say comes from the trees that grow from the ground. The tree of life was supplying a different kind of breath because it was a different kind of tree. If you actually look at that verse, something is weird about it because in clause number one, we know where the trees come from. They came from the ground. But then it sounds like, and there was a tree of life in the middle of the garden. As if like, whoa, 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 there was a tree of life in the middle of the garden? I mean, if I took it seriously, I would say, There are all these trees that grow from the ground, but there was a tree of life in the middle of the garden, as if it didn't grow from the ground, as if it had its source somewhere else. It looks like a tree, but its roots are really in heaven. It modulates breath from God that keeps our soul going. We have breath and nutrition that keeps our body going. That comes from the terrestrial trees. But we have breath and nutrition that keep us going, and that comes from the Itzachayim. Two kinds of breath. There's a terrestrial kind of breath, and then there's a heavenly kind of breath. A heavenly kind of breath. That's what the tree of life gives us. Seeing this really hit home the connection Rabbi Foreman made earlier between the tree and Torah. Torah, he'd said, was a source of life, 
a wellspring of God's heavenly breath composed into words, which allows us to connect with our life source. We immediately made a connection between that and the tree of life because, hey, the name is glaring, tree of life. But now, Rabbi Foreman was unpacking why the tree had that name, how it reflected its very nature and purpose. And the similarities with Torah were becoming so much more nuanced. Just like the Torah, the tree was a source of God's breath. Just like the Torah, its function was to nourish our souls. I was actually starting to see why the tree of life is all over my synagogue. A tree is really the perfect image to represent Torah as a continuous and organic source of life. But I never would have seen that without Rabbi Foreman's help. Okay, so that explains how the first parts of Genesis 2-7 and 2-9 are related. But what about the tricky part, the ending of the verses? Rabbi Foreman had dodged tackling this earlier, but now that we'd gotten this far, there was no turning back. Look at clause 3 in the first verse. Vayadam l'nefesh chaya. Man is a composite being. It is a nefesh, it's a soul. Chaya, that's alive in the world, that has a body. So, the first part of the verse says, God gave man a body from the ground. The second part of the verse says, God gave man a soul. And the third says, that's how man became a soul body, a nefesh chaya. Now, think about our second verse, the one that describes the creation of the trees. First part of that verse says how God nourishes the body. Second part of the verse says how God nourishes the soul. So do you see where Rabbi Foreman is going with this? The third clause is how you nurture a soul body. A soul that's not just a disembodied soul, but a soul that's actually connected in some weird way with the body, that's alive in the world, it walks around, it lives in the practical world. How do you nurture that kind of thing? You teach it good and evil. You teach it good and evil with an Eitzadat Tovarah. Because that's how you learn to live in the world. What does it mean for me to be a soul that's alive in the world? I actually have to do things. I actually have to figure out when it's ethical to fire an employee in my company that's not really working well, but has a family to feed. It's not just enough for me to connect to God's words. I actually have to figure out how to live in the world. Practicalities, tachlis. Talk to me about what good and evil is. What you're saying to me feels almost like, um, I don't know, like a response to the ascetic. Sort of like saying, hey, ascetic, who tries to deny the body and is purely spiritual and sort of lives outside of the world, there's this thing called knowledge of good and evil, which will allow the ascetic to actually enter the world. world. And you don't have to desist from the physical world, but there's actually morality, which governs how, how that which is spiritual can live with that which is physical. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I make peace with the world through morality. It allows my actions to reflect my soul. The Yitzhakayim is there because I'm a soul. My soul needs breath. I have to have it or my soul dies. I need to connect to God in that kind of way. Yitzhadat is the merger, is the part of Torah that's there because I'm a soul body. Torah has to speak to both parts of us. We need to be nourished in both ways. We need to just connect to God because our being demands it. And we got to know what to do because our doing demands it. Even though Rabbi Foreman and I had both intuitively seen a connection between Torah and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, this insight took that connection to a whole new level. It pushed me to think about morality, not just as a great gift, but as a source of nourishment, specially designed for just the sort of creature a human being is. Stepping back, that's what verses 7 and 9 were all about. Verse 7 was about our creation, 
physical, then spiritual, and finally the merger of the two. And verse 9 was about these trees, not random trees, but the exact trees we needed to nourish us as bodies, as souls, and finally as soul bodies. I asked earlier how deep Moshe's metaphor between the Torah and the trees ran. I was starting to see it ran pretty deep. And Rabbi Foreman was making me question whether metaphor was even the right way to think about it. These trees are somehow predecessors of the Torah. Maybe later on, you know, the Torah is our vehicle for connecting to God, for knowing what to do in God's world. But before that, we didn't have the Torah in the garden. We had trees, precursors of the Torah, a tree that was planted in the heavens, right? This tree of life or this other tree of knowledge of good and evil that modulates these nutritions of breath to nurture our being, but also gives us ways to act in the world, this tree of knowledge of, of good and evil. It's actually interesting that you, that you say that particular piece. When you took us to Deuteronomy um, and you talked about uh, the, Torah, the Torah as being a source of life and, and of good and, and evil as well, the text there, if you just read it simply, isn't saying the Torah, right? Moshe isn't saying, behold, I've given you this Torah. What he says is, behold, I've given you this mitzvah. Yes. Which, which is very interesting because the very first mitzvah that God actually gives us is about these trees. You say it's a precursor to Torah. We don't have to talk about it uh, as a cool idea, a nice idea we're making up. But like, if you are tracing the history of mitzvah, the very first mitzvah is Vayitzav. Yes. Uh, so it's, right. it, it's possible that, it's an that, that the trees are the embodiment of the first mitzvah. It's at least curious that the first mitzvah that we get is all the way back then, and then all of a sudden we're introduced to these trees. But one way or the other, the trees seem to be this precursor to the Torah. Before we ever had a Torah, right, we had these trees. Beautiful. I really like this. But now I'm having a really hard time because you just convinced me that we really should be eating from the tree of knowledge yes, of good and evil. Exactly. And the tree of life. We, so <laughs> for some reason, God says there's an order in which we do things. God puts the tree of knowledge of good and evil behind bars. Now the question is, is that forever or is it temporary? We don't know the answer to that in the story because man eats from it quickly. But the question is, what if he didn't eat from it? The Medrash says God would have shared it eventually. God was waiting for something. That's something which I'll have to explore later on in this series. What was God waiting for? What was God waiting for? I promise we'll get there, but have patience, because Rabbi Foreman wasn't quite done with his reading of Dvarim just yet. So far, Moshe's language opened a Pandora's box that helped us understand the function of the trees in the garden and of Torah. But remember, we still had some major issues with the text in Genesis, not least of all that Eve seemed to misidentify the tree she wasn't supposed to eat from. Could Dvarim help us solve that one? And, and now let's actually go to the point you made. When you read Deuteronomy 30, that verse, you notice something about the intertwining of that language, which I think is really interesting. Let's go back to that verse and just revisit that point that you made. What does Moshe say? See, I've taught you today. I've, I've given you today. Right? You see, if he wanted to just tell us there were these two trees and they were very separate, 
What would he have said? I've given you life and death, and I've given you good and evil. But he doesn't. He says, I've given you life, and I've given you good, right? He's like intertwining them together. So, Imo, I want to share with you a theory that can begin to help us answer the other questions that we had before. By the way, this theory was originally suggested to me by Eitan Aviner, who was uh, one of our PC members. And here's this crazy theory, basically just an Occam's razor point. Occam famously said in philosophy that all things being equal, the simplest explanation is always correct. If you can cut out a step in your logic and it doesn't make that much of a difference, just cut out the step. Keep it simple. If there's this thing called the Torah, and there's these two ways of relating to the Torah, and the two ways of relating to the Torah express themselves in two trees, but the two trees are really just two aspects of one thing, what if there's only one special tree in the garden? What if the tree of life is the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Why, why would that help? How, how does that answer our questions? If that's true, Eve doesn't misidentify the tree anymore. She was told that she can't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And all of a sudden, we had so many problems because when she identifies the snake, what tree she can't eat from, she said, I can't eat from the tree that's in the midst of the garden, but we said that's the tree of life. What if they're both the same tree? In other words, going back to that verse that describes the trees, what if I read it this way? God caused to grow from the ground. All these trees that were wonderful to eat, that were wonderful to look at. But there was a tree of life in the middle of the garden. Not that grew from the ground. It was just there. It was always there. And also, you can think of it another way. It's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. What if it's one tree? If it is, then Eve doesn't misidentify the tree anymore. So, so this is actually elegant because it, it, it basically is saying the tree of life was in the uh, center of the garden. And parenthetically, you should know this tree of life was also a tree of knowledge of good and evil. I, and let me just interject for just a moment. What that's suggesting is what is the tree most fundamentally, a tree of life or a tree of knowledge of good and evil? Tree of life. Yes. It's a tree of life in the center of the garden. By the way, it's also a tree of knowledge of good and evil. But if it's true, if you're right, that it's one tree, why wouldn't the Torah just say that it's one tree? Like, here we are splitting hairs to force it, this duality to be one thing. But why wouldn't the Torah come out and actually say, hey, this is one tree and not play with us by making it feel like there are two? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that, honestly. But I have a little bit of a theory that I'll share with you. One of the great differences between us and God is that God is one and we're not. When the philosophers talk about what it means that God is one, uh, Rav Bachia Ibn Pakuda in his famous work, the Chovah Salavavis, what he suggests is it doesn't just mean there's one God and not many gods. It's a description of the quality of God. God is a simple oneness. He can't be broken into parts. There's nothing in this world that's like that. Every oneness can be two. I have a stender, I can take an axe to it and there'll be two. I have a house, I can take it apart, it'll be two. I have an atom, I can take it apart. There's nothing, there's no oneness that I have. And it'll be Eve and Adam. That's right. There's, it'll be Eve and Adam. There's nothing that I've met in this world that I can't take apart 
We live in a world of twos. We don't live in a world of one. Every unity that we have in the world is actually a tension between opposites. The orbit of any planet that goes around the sun is the tension of centrifugal force versus gravity. If I just have centrifugal force, planets go flying off into space. If I only have gravity, planets go crashing into the sun. But I have these two things together. I've got this nice thing called an orbit. I have capillary action, and I have gravity, and I have and I have water going up the stems of leaves. So every what, what rabbinical school did you go to? I'm just curious. Like, <laughs> where did they teach capillary action? I didn't. That was not in my ninth grade biology. <laughs> so the, the bottom line is that every every unity that we have in the world is really not a simple unity. It's a tension between opposites. That's how human beings relate to life. We aren't God. We live in a world of duality. And so the Torah concedes that to us in all sorts of ways. We even see it in the creation stories. The two creation stories kind of tell two stories of creation from two perspectives of what it's like to be God. God as this sort of doer and God as this sort of beer. Just to give us some context here, by two creation stories or by Foreman Means Genesis chapter 1, which tells the classic seven days of creation creation story, and Genesis chapter 2, which tells the story of creation all over again, but in a somewhat different order and very different style. Another major difference, chapter 1 refers to God as Elohim, chapter 2 as Yud-Ke-Vav-Ke Elohim. A lot of ink has been spilled on what to make of these two stories and God's mysterious name change. Bible critics will tell you, look, it's two different origin myths mashed together. Don't expect coherence. But a careful reader will tell you that there's a lot in these two texts to suggest that they're two sides of a single coin. Rabbi Foreman is one such careful reader, and there's a phenomenal course on Aleph Beta called The Tale of Two Names that goes into this in depth. It's linked in the description if you want to check it out, but I gave you all the background that you need for now. Okay, back to our conversation. The two creation stories kind of tell two stories of creation from two perspectives of what it's like to be God. God as this sort of doer, and God as this sort of beer, right? God as doer, his name is Elohim. The God who's very, very powerful, who comes up with all these plans, who decides he's going to make this and then goes about and executes it. And that's really the impression that we get from Genesis 1. But the impression we get from Genesis 2 is God doesn't sort of do things. God almost facilitates things by just being around, right? As a matter of fact, in the second version of creation, we hear about other doers, Ela told out Shammai Marz, these are the generations of heaven and earth, as if heaven and earth are father and mother, and God is around to try to facilitate. And then there's this stuff that sprouts, and God nurtures these things. God's name in World 2 is not just Elohim, but yud ke vav elohim a word, yud Hey and vav Hey that has a lot to do with being, haya, hoveh, yihia, these words that are about was, is, and will be, being. The reason why we have these two different creation stories, God as doer, God as beer, is because it's a concession to how people think of God. What if you thought of God as a doer? Well, then you would look at creation this way. What if you thought about God as a beer? Well, then you would look at creation this way. The truth is the mysterious merger of the two. But the Torah can't talk about that, the reality in such terms. In our minds, a planter is a planter and a builder is a builder. These are two separate things. So the Torah helps us out and separates them. 
At some level, I think God is playing the same game with the trees. There are these two aspects of Torah. The easiest way to think about them is two trees, but of course, there's only one. So God can't lie to us. So God presents it as two trees. But if you're willing to read closely, you begin to see it's one tree. So I think it's the Torah's way of helping a being that lives in a dual a world of duality comprehend the secrets of unity. I have to tell you, I'm like super excited by what you just said. Because you can see the two names of God or the two chapters of Genesis or even the two trees and just say, yep, sloppy editing, just real sloppy editing. Or you can actually see the spiritual beauty that the text is trying to encode here, which is, um, I think it's it, it's probably even more than just uh, a concession to humanity, which see, seems to see things in dualities, but maybe even has to do with like the the spiritual mission of humanity in general, which is to take a world that is seemingly dualistic and unite it, right? Like that there is an Elohim aspect to us. We are creators. There is a Yudke Vavke aspect to us. We are beers. Can you bring those two two sides of you together? And so the, the same might be true here with this tree, right? Can you look closely at how this book is written and realize that that duality is really a unity? Yeah, I, I think that that's perhaps why the Torah might be playing coy with us. It's supposed to seem like two trees, but it's also supposed to seem like to the careful reader, like maybe the two are really one. It's a Chaim B'Dachagan, comma, Ve'itza Also, it's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that's the intertwining of the two that Moshe talks about in Deuteronomy 30. Oh, that's got it. That's why Moshe intertwines them. That really, really resonated with me. Because, just to spell it out, the tension we were seeing in the names of God, in human nature, in the Torah, and in the trees, they were all variations of the same tension between doing and being. It was like the tree of knowledge was a bridge between our Elohim side and God's. The tree of life, a lifeline between our souls and Yudke Vavke. And the thing the Torah seemed to be asking us was, can we see past the duality of that whole elegant structure to find the unity underneath? And the Torah being coy about it, forcing us to be careful readers and make these discoveries for ourselves, that's the transformative part of learning. It's what this podcast is all about. Plus, philosophy and literary theory aside, it was a huge relief to have an answer to Eve misidentifying the tree. So maybe Rabbi Foreman was right. Maybe the two trees were really one. Uh, no. After a second thought, the honeymoon was over. Something in me is really not okay with this. Like, God says, don't eat from the tree of knowledge, good and evil. He doesn't say, don't eat from the tree of life, right? Like, I yep. feel like, so what are you trying to pull up, pull over on me? <laughs> yeah. So you've just pointed to the great question with this theory. This theory sounds nice, but seems to have this big, gaping, huge hole in it, which is, why you just pick on the tree of knowledge being off limits if if actually right. the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil are off limits? Right. Why didn't you even tell me about the tree of life? That doesn't make any sense. Plus, Emu, to make matters worse, there's a verse at the end of this story that really doesn't make any sense. Full disclosure, I wasn't the first person to come up with this. In teaching this, I realized that somebody almost a thousand years ago came up with this idea, the tour the great predecessor of the Shulchan Aruch, actually quotes this 
very theory, the theory which I've just described to you, in the name of Rav Yosef Kimchi. Rav Yosef Kimchi actually says that these two trees, the Eitzachayim and the Eitzadas, Hakol Echad, he says, they're one tree. And he actually reads that verse exactly the way we read it, that it's a tree of life, and then it's also a tree of knowledge. It's like amazing. But the tour asks a question that seems to be a theory killer, and it comes from chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. When God decides to banish us from the garden after we've eaten from the tree of knowledge, God says, Now that mankind's become a knower of good and evil, What if he eats from the tree of life too? And he's going to eat from it, and he'll live forever. Now that really sounds... Like, there are two trees. I mean, he already ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If it was one tree, how could you have it that he ate from the tree of knowledge but didn't eat from the tree of life? It doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah, like, I'm just, like, noticing in this verse, it goes out of its way to say, that gam word, and also seems to make it really, really, really clear that there are two trees here. There's a tree of knowledge of good and evil, which they've already eaten from, and God is worried that they're going to take also from this tree of life. So... Thank you for wasting the last hour of my life. Right. I, I'm really sorry. It was a very nice theory, but I've completely <laughs> wasted your time. And I apologize to the audience that has given their good time shopping or the treadmill or wherever else you're listening to this to listen to this complete rabbit hole dead end. Very nice idea. And by the way, that's the tour. The tour comes to this conclusion. It's a really nice idea, but there's just no way around this question. That's the end of it. I'm sorry. Goodbye, Rav Yosef Kimchi. And the tour says, I have no idea what he does with this verse. And that's the end of the discussion. And wait, wait, wait. That's pretty cool. And that it, that the answer to what Rav Yosef Kimchi does with that verse has been lost to us for the last thousand years. Until. Until we come back next time and talk about what Rav Yosef Kimchi would say if he could bat in the bottom of the ninth inning against the tour. Right? What is the answer to the tour's completely theory destroying question? I think there's an answer to rescue Rav Yosef Kimchi's theory. And once you see it, it opens up not th- just this story, the great story of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but how we relate to the Torah throughout the rest of the five books of Moses and, I think, in our lives as well. So, Emu, until next time, thank you for joining me. I really look forward. Wait, are you really going to leave me on this cliffhanger here? Oh, I totally am. You're not getting the answer. Wait, are you serious? (laughs) I'm totally serious. There's got to be a next time. Well, because this one, because now I'm stuck. Like, you can't go. One second. No, no, I'm seriously stuck. Because (laughs) on the one hand, you're either stuck on the Chava verse and either she's just totally crazy or just uh, there's an issue because she's saying she can't eat from the tree that's Betochagan, which like we now have an answer for, or this answer is crazy because it's basically saying that there is one tree, which explains Chava, but then we have this verse, which makes it seem like there are two trees. So we're legit stuck. We're totally stuck. See you next week. (laughs) Okay, and you're telling me I need to wait. You need to wait. That's the way the cookie crumbles. Looking forward. This is exciting. Thank you. Okay, see you next time. Man, I really was stuck. If you are too, stay tuned. Next time on A Book Like No Other, Two Trees or One, Rabbi Foreman tries to save a thousand-year-old theory and in the process offers a whole new reading of the garden. We get to what God's plan was, why we had to wait to eat from the tree of knowledge, and how it all went wrong. 
Basically, all the drama and intrigue we've been ignoring comes back in spades. Click subscribe to be notified when the new episode is up. And in the meantime, what did you think of this episode? Are you team one tree or two trees? And either way, how are these ideas about God and Torah landing for you? Leave us a voice note and let us know. We love hearing from you. There's a link in the description. Just click it and click record. A Book Like No Other is a product of Aleph Beta, a nonprofit dedicated to helping people fall in love with Torah. Visit alephbeta.org for hundreds of more deep dive audios and beautifully animated videos on nearly every biblical text. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll find a lot there that speaks to you. This episode was recorded by Rabbi David Foreman and me, Imu Shalev. It was edited by Tikva Hecht with additional edits by Evan Wiener. Audio editing was done by Hilary Gutman. A book like no other's senior editor is Tikva Hecht. Adina Blausin keeps all the parts moving.